Flashing sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I am very proud of our country. We cannot continue to allow what's happened to our country to continue to happen. We can't let it happen. So I'm proud. I'm proud of our country. And I am a nationalist. It's a word that hasn't been used too much. Some people use it, but I'm very proud. I think it should be brought back. I repeat, the caravan will not cross our southern border illegally under any circumstances. If you seek to come here, go through the normal refugee process. I can tell you with certainty, we are determined that illegal entry into the United States from this caravan will not be possible. And now, Stacy Washington. Oh, yeah. I'm back. Another day, another slate of stories, lots of news and information for us to unpack here. And so it's my pleasure to be with you. Stacy Washington, host of Stacy on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Head over to AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com to find out more. You can find the podcast there and so much other great content. Thank you so much for everyone who participated in Shareathon last week. We're so blessed to have had you supporting our network. And now we're moving forward. Today on the program, we have Shelby Emmett. She's actually the director of Center to Protect Free Speech at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Yes, Alec. We're going to have someone represented Alec on the show. Don't get triggered. It's going to be okay. Um, It's going to be pretty fantastic to speak with her. And we are also going to be talking about, I have a little bit of audio from both um, Josh Hawley and Claire McCaskill on their records. Uh, As you know, we, we have access to Josh Hawley. He's the attorney general of the state of Missouri. He's actually come on before he would come on again. We've reached out to Claire McCaskill. She is not friendly uh, to outlets that aren't on the left. And so she has not yet favored us with a a scheduling opportunity to, uh, to have her on the show, but we're definitely going to play some audio from both of them. So you can get some perspective on where they stand and make your own informed decision. We'll be taking your calls later in the show uh, after our guest. In the third segment, we'll be talking to you, the listener, 866-963-2037 at 866-963-2037. Right now, I want to get into our daily confession and, and so excited about doing this every day. Um, it is, is something that I'm seeing all over. People are really hungry and looking for some positivity and so it's a pleasure to be able to have that on the show to start the show off with every day. So the first part of our daily confession is it's Ephesians 2.10. You were created for a purpose. So when you read that in the Bible, you might think, yeah, I was created to, you know, work whatever job you have or, or um, you know, maybe be wife and mom or husband and dad or maybe you're single and you're not really sure what your family is going to look like and when that's all going to crack out. But you might be feeling pretty nebulous about it, or you might be frustrated because maybe work situation is not exactly what you would want it to be. Well, you can be assured, you can rest assured that God's word is true 100% of the time and that you were indeed created for a purpose. And God's purpose for you in this life is an outstanding one, and it's for your good so that you would have a good future. And at any point where we might be experiencing any, any kind of bumpiness, anything like that, we are to know even in those low moments that God has a plan for us, he has a purpose for us, and that we're going to be walking that out. And so that's Ephesians 2.10. Then um, you are victorious. That's 1 John 5, 3 through 5. You are victorious. So maybe it doesn't feel so victorious right now, 
But walking in obedience means even when the things around us don't look victorious, we are still able to hold on to what God's word says about who we are in Christ. We are victorious. That's 1 John 5, 3 through 5. And then you are protected. Psalm 121 and 3, you are protected. The Bible has many places where it talks about the glory of the Lord being our rear guard, his wings, that we can run to to hit the cover of his wings and experience safety, that he's our sanctuary, he's our high tower. We are protected in him. So I hope that's encouraging for you today and that that um, kind of lifts you up on this wonderful afternoon. I have to say, one of the things that's really lifting my spirits up is this fall weather. To have real fall in the Midwest is fantastic. We Sometimes we skip right over the fall and we have summer, 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 summer. And just when we think we can't take it anymore because it's gone on far too long, then it's straight up winter. I'm wearing a sweater. Like the people when back when SNL was totally awesome and you could watch it and laugh, those little ladies would come on and they'd have their curly hair and they'd talk about it being sweater weather. It's actually sweater weather. You can put on a sweater and go outside still without an actual jacket. Um, it's knee-high boot weather. It's even knee-high boots, sweater, and vest weather. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you like wearing that kind of stuff, which I think is so cute. So it's fantastic to have that. Um, so there's this audio bit of President Trump saying something that people are trying to make out to be him making a declaration that he's a white supremacist. And we have to unpack this here because we need to be armed with facts and truth to be able to handle when people are saying false things. And this is false. It's totally false that he said he's a white supremacist or a racist. The president said at a rally a couple nights ago that he was a nationalist. And so here he is. Listen to him say it himself. It's number two. We're putting America first. It hasn't happened in a lot of decades. We're putting them first. We're taking care of ourselves for a change, folks. Thank you. I like that guy, but not that much. <laughs> not that much. But radical Democrats want to turn back the clock or the rule of corrupt, power-hungry globalists. You know what a globalist is, right? You know what a globalist is. A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. So, um, first of all, if you listen to the context of what the president said, it's pretty clear what he means. It's, I mean, it's so simple. He said, some people want to be globalists. And we all know what the global agenda is. It's the eradication of borders. It's the elimination of national sovereignty. It's the redistribution of wealth. It's anyone in a country that's wealthy and prosperous admitting that they got it through ill-gotten gains and that they're horrible people and that in order to make restitution for their previous wrongs, no matter how long ago it was, no matter whose ancestors did the wrongs and paid for it with blood and, and war and all that, now it's time for people who are currently the recipients of this largesse, this generational prosperity, to give it away to poorer nations that, I'm sorry, but truth is truth, nations that receive huge influxes of cash, just straight cash, they don't use that to rebuild their country. 
That's why we stay in countries that we have war in to rebuild the country ourselves, because if we just leave pallets of money, that money goes to the warlords, despots, dictators and other ne'er-do-wells. And the people themselves, the really, these people deserve some kind of help. They don't get the help at all. So and we see examples of this all over. Look at what's happening with the USA that we send to Venezuela and Honduras and, and what's happening with it. Well, they're using it to send people here now. The caravan is funded by, now we hear it's funded by Venezuela. So when he says nationalist, he's talking about the promotion of the interests of a particular nation, that nation being the United States, above the interests of other nations. So let's say, you know, a corresponding term for someone in a family would be a familyist. <laughs> now, that's not a term, but bear with me here. Let's say you're, let's, let's just make hypotheticals because liberals love to deal in hypotheticals, but I make good ones. So let's, let's, let's use this one for a couple seconds. Let's indulge. Let's say that you're in a relationship, you're married to a person um, who is really interested in taking care of your neighborhood. And so anyone in the neighborhood who has a problem, your spouse is interested in, you know, taking over a basket of food, taking over, you know, a box of clothing, taking over, you know, a, a check, money, whatever. And your spouse spends the majority of their time listening to the concerns of other people in the neighborhood. And then if they're on hard times or if they've, you know, they've got some utility bill that they can't pay, your spouse is doing everything they can using the, the household funds to support these neighbors. Now, at first glance, you might say, wow, that's so altruistic. That's so kind. But let's say your spouse is doing this to the detriment of your own household. So now you don't have the money to pay your light bill and your, 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 you know, your gas bill for the month. You're wondering what's going on. The, the accounts are going down and the bills aren't getting paid. We, we have to stop helping our neighbors. And your spouse says, well, that sounds like you just want to elevate our family above everyone else. We have to help other people you would soon be at an end to that situation. You'd be having direct deposits go to other accounts because in your mind, the place where you live has to have heating, cooling, water. The utilities need to be on. The mortgage or rent needs to be paid. The car payment needs to be paid if you have one. Whatever the bills are in your household, you feel those bills need to be paid first before you go outside of your home and pay someone else donate to someone else, give to someone else. So your spouse realizes that you're going to, you know, take control of the situation and you're now having things paid by direct deposit before the spouse can get to it and give it away to the neighbor. So the spouse goes out and goes to the bank and says, this is how much money I make. These are my bills. I'd like to borrow money. And so the bank says, sure, we'll do a personal loan to you. Here's, here's an amount that you can afford. Your new monthly payments are this. You come home, now there's a new bill on the table for the personal loan, and you say, well, what, what's this for? What's this, what, what did we buy? Oh, I borrowed that money so I could give it to our neighbors because our neighbors still have problems with their light bill. You know, this, the one down the street going this way has this going on. The one going down the street the other way, they need their car payment paid this month. They lost their job. And so you listen to these stories and your heart truly goes out. They, they have medical bills they can't pay. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, wow, okay, well, I wonder if we could help. But then, you, you, then you're like, wait a minute, what did you just say? Did you say you took out a personal loan to pay the bills of our, our neighbors? And your spouse says, yeah, because you said our family comes first and I don't mind us paying our bills, but we can't stop helping our neighbors. 
Now, if that sounds crazy to you, if you're sitting there shaking your head or if you just spit your coffee out all over your laptop because you're like, what is she talking about? That is the situation we're in as America. We are actually borrowing money to give to countries that need money. It's called USAID. Up until Donald Trump signed the Mexico decision, Mexico policy. So the Mexico policy is where we either give money to fund abortion abroad or we don't. And when Democrats are in charge, we do. And when Republicans are in charge, we don't fund abortion abroad. And so it saves us like $610 million in U.S. aid a year because that's how much we spend on shipping abortion out to other countries, paying for abortions in foreign countries. And so this is what we do. Anytime we're borrowing 40 cents on every dollar and we're still giving away USAID, we're actually borrowing money to give to other countries. Anytime we're spending a billion dollars a month in Afghanistan and Iraq and the Middle East, rebuilding it and maintaining all of these you know, bases there, et cetera, and we're borrowing 40 cents on the dollar, we're doing exactly what I just described in that family. That's what we're doing. And so now, fast forward, this has been going on for some years. There's a huge budget deficit in the family. And one of the relatives comes to visit because now things are at dire straits. Numerous personal loans have been taken out to fund the neighbors and there's a whole lot of debt and it can't be serviced by the husband and the wife working. And so one of the in-laws comes by and says, I heard you guys are looking at foreclosure on your house and we got, we want to come and help you out, but we're not just going to write you a check. We want to take a look at your bills and your debts. And we want to see what we can do to help you consolidate. Maybe we can make some arrangements with the bank to extend the term of your loan so we can get a lower payment because all of these bills have to be paid and we're going to figure out how we can get it done. So the couple gets all of the bills out and spreads them out everywhere and starts, you know, going over everything. And some of the stuff, you know, you know how it is. If you've, if you've ever gone through this, you, you start off with a few small bills. You're like, oh, wow, we could pay these off in a matter of a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then those will be out of the way. And then you start really organizing things, and you realize, okay, it's as bad as it seems, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. The tunnel is just, you know, 50 miles long, so let's, let's get to it. And the family member says, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to issue a moratorium on borrowing money to pay for other people's bills. And we will no longer spend any money paying for anyone else's bills. And the spouse who's been doing that loses their mind, threatens divorce, starts kicking down walls and putting holes in the furniture. The, the common sense relative is Donald Trump. The crazy spouse is the liberals. And the Republicans are the ones who've been letting it go on. Any questions? We'll be back with Shelby Emmett right after this. Are you still stuck on the healthcare roller coaster? Still paying those high premiums? And strapped into huge deductibles? Not knowing what's around the next turn? Well, then let me tell you about a sound, sensible healthcare choice that really is affordable. It's MediShare, the healthcare sharing solution people like you have been trusting in for more than 25 years. MediShare members report saving around $500 a month on their healthcare costs, and they never pay for things they don't believe in. Time to say goodbye to that healthcare roller coaster and say hello to MediShare. Call star star 345 to find out how much you can save on your healthcare. MediShare. Call star star 345. Message and data rates may apply. That's star star 345. 
Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Some years ago, my mother-in-law battled cancer. I will never forget the time a friend of the family said an awfully inappropriate thing to her. Believe it or not, this guy said, Marlene, you look bad. You look like you're not going to make it. That's exactly what he said. I quickly escorted him out of the room and let him know that that wasn't exactly the smartest thing he could have said. Now, that's an extreme example, but I've heard of other nightmare situations when people just didn't know what to say and they proved it by opening their mouths. In Job chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, Job is a little bit upset with his so-called friends who, rather than give him comfort, they give all these half-baked insights as to why he's suffering. Verse 1, then Job answered, I've heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. Is there no limit to windy words or what plagues you that you answer? I too could speak like you if I were in your place. I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips could lessen your pain. In other words, Job is saying, if we traded places, certainly I would have incredible, articulate, wonderful insights just as you're giving to me. So when you're going to see someone who's in the midst of some kind of pain, remember our mission is to comfort. Generally, the less said, the better. Keep in mind how you want people to respond to you when it's your turn to suffer, because we're all going to be there one day. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. When people are in pain, speak with your heart. Choose your words carefully and don't use a lot of them. Thanks, Crawford, and thank you for listening to today's Legacy Moment, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show. Follow me over at uh, Stacy on the Right on Instagram and on Twitter. You can go to StacyOnTheRight.com and hit the subscribe button. You can also follow American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk on Facebook. We'd love you to do that. Um, right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Shelby Emmett. She's the director of the Center to Protect Free Speech at American Legislative Exchange Council. Thank you so much, Shelby, for joining the show today. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm just kind of, you know, the news uh, that the news cycle is blowing my hair back, but I'm I'm still alive, still have skin on my face. <laughs> this is still... why I drink wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, that would be great, except it, it's coming so fast and hard. Who has time to uncork and pour? Really? It's just so much going on. Um, which is why I'm so excited to speak to you about your work at the American Legislative Exchange Council, which some people think is the Debo, you know, you, over there, Alec, it's just uh, the, the back of all things evil. But I love the work that Alec does in helping our legislators um, really kind of understand the laws that they're putting together and how those impact Americans. So let's talk about free well, speech. What's going on at Alec with free speech? Yeah, well, thank you so much. Um, so for those that don't know, um, Alec is a member organization for state lawmakers. We're nonpartisan. We do have some Democratic members. Um, and the whole point is to bring lawmakers together all across the country to share their own ideas. So if the state did something in one uh, area and let's say it worked well, then they can bring that idea and talk with other states. And then they produce model policies that if passed within our organization, those members can take back to their state. And it still goes through, obviously, the same rigorous legislative process in the state legislatures. But it's just exactly what 
the founding had in mind, is that you have each state had, are these marketplaces of ideas. And as people and constituents are able to move to different states, they move because of the policies that are being impacted in their state. So mm-hmm. in my role as the director for free speech, I help educate lawmakers on the First Amendment because the First Amendment specifically uh, regulates Congress. It tells Congress what they can't do, and that applies to the states via the 14th Amendment. Um, and we help them walk through a lot of these issues, but also make sure, because we believe in limited government, that they're not just responding and then passing or drafting laws that would be either unconstitutional or would have the potential of maybe chilling or impacting the free speech rights of individuals. So we worked on free speech for campus speech, uh, commercial speech rights for businesses and entrepreneurs. So anything like Airbnb to Uber, your cities right now are trying to redraft regulations in order to catch up with technology. And my job is to help walk them through that so you can encourage more business and more entrepreneurship within your own communities. And so speaking of Uber and and Lyft and places like that, Airbnb, these are services that are, they're the gig economy, they're brought to us by millennials. And I got to tell you, Shelby, these are things that I, I, I can't remember like what I hated riding in taxi cabs and now I don't have to do that anymore. I can ride in Ubers, which are so much better than taxi cabs. They're more affordable and they're just nicer to ride in. And that's just one example of things that these are new um, products, new services that our current laws don't really address. Are you having success in drafting things that are then going out into the marketplace of states that are, that are kind of changing that and updating what are really archaic laws? Uh, yes. Yeah. So right now we're doing a lot of education around things. So one of the, the main concepts of commercial speech is that it's something that a lot of people, lay people, lawmakers, don't necessarily have a huge grasp of because, A, unlike your federal lawmakers in Washington, D.C., state lawmakers are usually in session 30 to 60 days a year, and they actually work in the communities of which they live. So they're real estate agents, they're teachers, they're farmers. They don't have a full-time staff, and they have actual problems to deal with. They don't just get to sit there and, you know, produce soap operas on Capitol Hill like we see on TV all the time. (laughs) Um, I think the most success we've had so far is probably around campus speech. There's been a lot of different organizations pushing models. Uh, We have a model here called the uh, Forming Open and Robust University Minds Act, the Forum Act. And ours is unique because it requires education of all students, but it also holds the state actor accountable, and that's key. Uh, you've seen images or video stories of campus police officers arresting students simply because they passed out constitutions. Or if you look at your university speech codes, that these are the policies within their university system, they're potentially expelling students just because they've said something, quote-unquote, offensive. And people may not like what people say, but at the end of the day, all your public universities are required to uphold the First Amendment, which means you can't just get people in trouble and get them to school because you don't like what they stand for, you don't like what they've said. So we've had a lot of success from that. It's been introduced in numerous states. It's passed in a version of it in Louisiana. And it's really important because it's not just enforcing the law, but it's also changing the culture on college campuses. So students aren't running to the principal like they're still six-year-olds in elementary school when they don't like something, and encourages them to be the adults that they are, because we are talking about 18 to 22-year-olds, and it requires them to deal with it themselves and maybe hold their own protest or a counter-protest or host another speaker instead of just trying to shut other people down. Mm. I love those. Those all sound fantastic. 
<laughs> I'd love to see uh, more people kind of get the idea that you you don't get to shout people down or stop them from coming to your campus just because you disagree with their ideas. Um, but this is something we kind of see almost exclusively from one side of the political aisle. Why do you think that is? Well, I will tell you in my work as a First Amendment attorney, it's actually pretty um, nonpartisan. You, you see this happen in waves. So students on the right will do this, students on the left will do this. Right now, it does tend to come from more on the left. Um, but part of this is also just because of where we are in society today with social media. So unlike, you know, me, I'm 33 now, I had the blessing luxury of being able to get through college before everybody had a video capability on their cell phone and before <laughs> Facebook and YouTube became a thing, right? Um, so all of the ridiculous things that we might have done when we were young, thank the Lord there's no evidence of it. So, <laughs> so mm. some of it I think is just blown up because you're seeing it more frequently because we, have the, we can actually see into the college environment now. Um, but I do think a lot of this is the result of um, our culture, right? We are starting to raise young people without a lot of resilience. Everything is there. My mom's a teacher in, in middle school, and a lot of the things that they're taught to do now is constantly worry about the feelings of students. You know, when I was growing up, it's, Shelby, your feelings will matter when you start paying your own bills. Mm -hmm. And there's been way too much, I think, emphasis on feeling good than in producing people who can think critically. Part of this is also because college, unfortunately, has now become a consumer product. Um, it makes sense, right? If someone's expected to pay $120,000 a year, they want to feel good every single day that they're there. That's why you're getting some of these ridiculous majors from social justice to, you know, whatever it is, and then they get upset when they can't pay off their student loans. Well, that's because someone didn't talk with them like an adult and say, look, Susie, I know you feel like this is a great degree, but you need to be able to get a job. And we're not having, we're not treating young people the way that we treated young people 50, 60, 70 years ago. We're treating them much more fragile. We're treating them like young kids much more further into life. You make some excellent points there. And, and I just want to say, you know, I'm, I'm not in my 30s anymore, but I definitely um, had the same experience with my parents. And I didn't feel like they didn't care, but I definitely felt like my feelings were like, you know, maybe to the bottom end of the top 10 things they were interested in. And the things that were ahead of my feelings were like, they would make those crucial to me. Like those, it, I would care about those things too before my feelings, because they made it so clear to me that if I didn't care about those things, things, everything would be really unpleasant anyway, regardless of my feelings. Um, this is something that it's, it's like a lost art form. Do you think We'll see a return to it. Do you think millennials will be the ones to be tough on their kids since no one was tough on them? I do. I think you're particularly uh, in the older millennial generation. So in my age group, they say, you know, we were the last ones to play outside, but we also know technology because we also grew up somewhat with computers in the home. Mm -hmm. And you are starting to see that because it's those same millennials, that same generation, are the people that did give you Uber and Airbnb, right? We are the people that said, look, everyone's complaining about, for example, the discriminatory practices in the taxi industry. They don't want to pick people up in certain neighborhoods. They won't drive you home at certain times of night. Um, but now with the new capabilities through free markets and having things like Uber and Airbnb brought to you by millennials, now more people have opportunities and safe ways to get home instead of just sitting back and complaining stuck with the city-run taxi companies. So um, I think millennials are leading the charge. I think that they're much more entrepreneurial in nature, 
one of the blessings you can say from the recession in 2008 is I think it did teach a lot of people that if you do things, quote unquote, the right way, you know, you finish high school, you go to college, you get your degree, everything's going to be rosy for you. People learn that that's just not going to happen and you have to have a backup plan and maybe a plan C through S through G. And they're much more willing and able to take those risks, but they need the policies and the regulations and things to be updated to reflect that. And that's one of the things we do here at the center. I love it. I love what, what Alec does. And I, I have to say, um, I think it's, it's a new concept that you only, and I, I get it. Like, obviously it's always been, you know, graduate from high school, go to college or get some training in, in a skilled area and then go out and you're probably going to do well. But it's, it's to me a recent phenomenon that people say, if you want to be successful, you need only do one, two, and three, which kind of says, regardless of the circumstances, that doesn't take into consideration that certain things in life are not guaranteed, your health, your, the health of your family members, relationships. And so even if you do the basic things that you need to do to be successful, there's a chance that you might have a rocky road or you might not start out as easily as possible or you might start out well and then things might become bumpy. And we just, we have, we've kind of made this a mantra. Well, if you do these things, you'll be successful. There is no guarantee of success anywhere, not, not just in this country, but anywhere. Exactly. And I, I think, unfortunately, millennials have been the ones branded to think that they're entitled to everything. But I think if we're really honest about it, it's really, uh, quite frankly, I think more of my parents' generation, right, uh, where you were able to work in the same job for 30, 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. I'm from Detroit originally. And when that recession hit, you had a lot of people that just didn't know what to do because they had went right from high school to working at Ford. And they were there for 30, 40 years, and they thought they were getting these great pensions, and then all of a sudden that just may not be there. And that's just not something that I don't think this generation thinks of. Um, Mm -hmm. They don't see themselves in the same career for 30, 40 years. They don't even believe in that stability. You're always hearing millennials, uh, I think, trashed a lot about, let's say, home ownership. Part of that, yes, is because of assets and things like that, but it's also we know that we have to be much more flexible and be able to be mobile. And you have to be able to pick up and move at a drop of a hat. So, yes, there's a lot of ways that you can, you know, quote-unquote trash the millennial, but I also think that unlike our parents' generation, we're not expecting things like Social Security or Medicare to be there for us. We're trying to find ways to make sure that we can take care of ourselves in the future. Yeah, and I, I covered this on the show some months ago, which was an article Um, It was over at money.com or one of the financial websites and it talked about this new three act play and, and the your life is a three act play and you have your younger years where you're just getting started. You're figuring out your career goals and aspirations and you're kind of working and establishing yourself. And then there's the second portion, which is, these are your highest earning years. This is where you're in your career field or you've opened your business and you start to really earn money and you can do things. You have to earn the money to put kids through school and, you know, buy a house, et cetera, et cetera. And then instead of after that being retirement, the third act is, Hey, I'm going into something. Maybe you've always wanted to own a bookstore. You've always wanted to do a franchise business and you go into that with the intention of that being your third act So it's not so much, I'm 65, I'm automatically retiring. You know you're going to live into your 70s, 80s, possibly 90s. So you're working until you can no longer work. But that third act is less strenuous than the second, but still earns you a living and keeps you from having to rely on the federal government. I actually think that is the wisest plan for people who are younger because Social Security will not be there. The the government doesn't seem to be able to get a plan together that can save it uh, other than borrowing more money from other countries. (laughs) 
Exactly. And I think our generation, we've either been told this by our parents that it's not going to be there, or again, I think that recession was a big wake-up call into the psyche of people in their, I would say, young 30s, maybe mid-50s to understand that you can't just have this one path. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why free speech, these things are so important, because you have to be able to have these complex conversations. You have to be able to have the hard conversation. We need to actually be able to talk about the things that everyone's afraid to talk about, like the fact that the federal government has no actual way to pay everyone their Social Security, Mm -hmm. and the fact that this generation just can't keep covering everybody else when we haven't been able to build our own assets and our own growth and our own opportunities. But you can't do that if you're constantly shutting people down or you don't want to hear things that upset you because a lot of the things that we need to talk about are going to be very uncomfortable things that are going to upset a lot of people. You're right, Shelby. And I'm I'm all for talking about it because the one of the first steps that I found personally to addressing a problem is somebody's got to be willing to sit down and talk to someone else who's intimately involved in the problem you got to be able to sit down and talk about it. And if people are triggered immediately and can't even, you know, make it through the first five minutes of just laying out, here's what the problem is, it never gets solved. Um, I I agree with you on the free speech issue, and I'm so glad that the American Legislative Exchange Council is so hard at work on advancing these causes and educating our legislators. Uh, the, The states are the experimental proving grounds of this country and they are a wonderful place for us to start these great ideas about restoring free speech and making sure to keep it free uh, as a part of our constitutional rights thank you so much for joining the show today thank you so much for having me you have a great weekend oh you too all right that was shelby emmett she's the director of the center to protect free speech at alec and as you just heard she's an expert pretty wise to be 33 years old you know it's young people like her who can give us hope that We still have a lot of brain trust here in this country that can do great things on the legislative side. And I I really I have a lot of respect for Alec as a group because they're so maligned. But the work that they do, especially the education, like I've I've, uh, met legislators here in the state of Missouri who've traveled to Alec for their conference. And they've they've gone to events sponsored by Alec and they have come back. I mean, it's just like a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of knowledge. So um, really important that we continue to support their work just because it's nonpartisan and because they're really on the side of the Constitution. Wonderful. We'll be taking your calls when we get back. The number is 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. Keep it here. A dear sister in the Lord who is a writer for the AFA Journal wrote an astonishing article about idols. In this article, she attests to the fact that if we are truly honest with ourselves, we will find things or people whom are more important in our lives than our relationship with God. Let's just say when I read this, I did my own soul searching and found a few. There are several passages in God's word where he tells us to not idolize things or people. Even the very first two commandments warns us about idolatry. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John tells us to keep our ourselves from idols. Idolatry is sin, and it could be your career, your marriage, your car, including yourself. John Piper says it best, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. 
How do you get satisfied and excited about God? Refresh your memory of what the Savior of the world did on the cross and ask the Lord to help you make Him number one in your life. With a heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Victory McIntosh. Connect with us more at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Hi, I'm Anthony. I had goals and passions. You know, I wanted to be an architect when I grew up, but my addiction really stole everything. I came to Teen Challenge with $1.75 in my pocket. I feel like I'm not even a person who I was. My life got transformed. If you know an adult or teenager who's struggling with a chemical addiction, Teen Challenge can help. Call us today at 417-581-2181 or reach us online at teenchallengeusa.com. This is Urban Family Talk. It's time to call your senators. We need to tell them to put an end to the liberals' filibuster, switch to a majority vote, and defund Planned Parenthood. Call the Capitol switchboard at 202-224-3121 or go to afaaction.net. Senators respond to constituent calls. So call 202-224-3121 and tell your senators to switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood. Your call will make a difference. Securing America. Fleet Week San Diego, a chance for landlubber civilians to see what the U.S. Navy does up close and personal. Dennis Dubbert is on the board of directors of Fleet Week. Our job is to enhance the, uh, the, the reputation, enhance the uh, sea services here in San Diego and to honor the men and women who serve. Petty Officer Kirsten Hampton says Fleet Week gives men and women in uniform an opportunity to show their gratitude as well. It's a great reminder of, of how much everyone appreciates the Navy so much and what we do and it's their time to to show that appreciation just as well as it's our time to show them how much we appreciate being here in their city and how much we we love giving that support and everything we do. This year's Fleet Week includes military ship tours and an innovation zone where students can learn more about high-tech jobs in the military. Rachel Sutherland, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I did over 50 town halls last year and I listened. And that's what's dictating what I'm talking about because healthcare is personal to everyone. And they are very worried about what's going on. Uh, they're concerned because they were promised repeal and replace. So they assumed that the Republicans had a better idea. As it turned out, that was just a bumper sticker. They didn't have a better idea. And they couldn't even get enough Republican votes for what their idea was because it was going to be so damaging. So there's some anxiety about it. And I want to reassure people uh, that I get that and that the protections that are in the law that they've come to appreciate and want to hold on to, that I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure they stay in place. That was... Senator Claire McCaskill talking about, and this this was a standard interview um, with a regular news media outlet. Um, this was her response to um, some questions about what's going on with the vote, and she was she, with with her policies, and she was just kind of expounding on that. I have to bring you these audio clips because she won't join me here on the show to allow me to ask questions for our listeners in Missouri. Um, on how she stands on the issues. Now, true enough, she her campaign would probably say, well, we already know where you stand. You're Stacey on the right and your audience is right leaning. And we don't feel like we need to come on to your program to discuss our ideas. There's enough information out there for you to get. Um, but I, I feel like 
I disagree with that pretty strenuously. I'm living here in Missouri. I am a Missouri voter and I am her constituent, um, as is every member of our household of voting age. Not only that, but her representation in the media only being on one side belies her responsibility to represent the voters of the state of Missouri, which is a red state. We have a supermajority in the state legislature for Republicans. And so it is incumbent upon her to respond to all constituents, be they on her quote unquote side or not. So here's a little bit of audio from Josh Hawley. Um, he says, unlike McCaskill, we don't we don't write off any part of the state. It's number three. You know, we go, Bill, to every corner of the state talking about the issues that matter to Missourians. It's very simple. At the end of the day, Missourians want somebody who's going to be for them. They don't want a party line liberal. They want somebody who's going to stand with them to secure our border, to protect our workers, uh, to put pro-Constitution judges on the bench. And by the way, to stand up to this mob mentality that we're seeing from the liberal left. That's what the folks of the state want, and that's exactly what I'll do. We don't write off any part of the state, and that's a big difference between my opponent and myself. You know, she has uh, been caught on tape saying that she's willing to give up votes in rural Missouri. I'm not. I'm not willing to give up votes in any part of the state, not the suburbs, not the cities, and not the rural areas like where I grew up. We're going to go to every corner. We're going to ask for every vote, and we're going to talk about the, the pressing need of this hour to stand up for a strong America. So I'm pretty happy about that. Um, I, I'm, I'm willing to give him a chance. I'm willing to give him an opportunity to come on to, uh, you know, the, the Senate on behalf of Missourians and show what he can do uh, about some of the problems that are plaguing this country. We've seen what Claire McCaskill can do. Um, and she's not even willing to do this. We're talking about simple steps that can be taken. And one of the most simple steps you can take is to be willing to hear the opposing side. And that's why we have many times had people from the political left on this program to hear their ideas, to hear th they talk about their books, whatever they have going on that they want to present. We've had them on the program and we will continue to do that in the future. Sometimes it gets a bit contentious. Sometimes it's tough. But in the end, um, we allow it because it is important for us to hear both sides. Um, so we have the call lines open at 866-963-2037. Um, and so I want to get to a couple of the stories that we have. Um, so we have this huge census win, the Supreme Court striking down this activist New York court in a census citizenship ruling. So it's a U.S. Commerce Department adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census is the issue here. So back when um, the U.S. Census removed the question, it was, of course, you know, all, all of these things are on like on a whim. It, it's not, hey, does this make sense? They took the question off. So now they want to reinstate the question because they're concerned that, as we have expressed here on the show, there is a dearth of, uh, you know, um, 20. There's a dearth of truth about how many people are in this country illegally. Well, the fact is, the reason we don't have very many people, uh, we don't have any accuracy on how many people are here is because people aren't required to answer that question on the census. Um, and, and obviously, we have some idea, but, and we know it's more than 11 million, but could it be 30 million? Could it be 40 million? Is it only 20 million? Well, one good barometer of that is the U.S. Census. Now, you might say, well, people just won't answer it or people won't take the census. 
Well, if you have people living in your state who refuse to take the census and then they come out and visit you and they try and try and try and get you to you know, answer the questions and you don't, remember the census is how they apportion seats in Congress. So the, the census is super important. And it's part of the reason why they don't want this question on the census. So this appellate court panel, so this, this case has been winding its way through. Should the question be reinstated? Should it not? The appellate circuit court panel initially agreed with the lower court and ACLU lawyers. However, U.S. Solicitor General Noel Francisco asked the Supreme Court to stay the circuit court ruling. The Supreme Court agreed with the administration and blocked the ridiculous activist lawyers from questioning the cabinet. Now, the Supreme Court does allow the plaintiffs to question the DOJ and their civil rights division lawyer. So according to CNN, interesting that they're reporting on this, the Supreme Court blocked the deposition of Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross in a case challenging the decision to reinstate this question. The action is a partial victory for the Trump administration that argued that such a deposition of a cabinet official is rarely, if ever, justified. The court did, however, allow the deposition of a top Department of Justice official in the case, and Justices Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas wrote to say they would have also blocked the deposition of Gore as well as related discovery. Blocking the Ross deposition is a partial loss for a coalition of states and the ACLU who are going to trial on November 5th and sought the deposition to bolster their argument that adding the question is unlawful and unconstitutional. Now, this is kind of crazy because, remember, if it's unlawful and unconstitutional, then it was unlawful and unconstitutional before, but no one ever posed that. So is it truly unlawful and unconstitutional? I, I don't think so. I, I don't think it is unlawful or unconstitutional for the U.S. government to ask if you are a citizen of this country or not on a form. Not only would it give us an, a more accurate picture of how many people are here illegally, it would also tell us how many people are overstaying their visas, a, 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 still here illegally, but a separate type of illegal entry. Basically, they're here they're allowed to be here, then they say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to be here, or I'm going to stay here instead of leaving when it's my time to leave. And we have an opportunity to get a, a more accurate number on that. It would also tell us how many people are here and are on green card status. We would have a more p accurate picture of that. In other words, if we're going to have a census, why not have it be as accurate as possible? I don't see anything unconstitutional about that. Now, next bit of information, news and information, the New York Times was actually appalled that Trump supporters are mocking liberals. And the reason that the liberals are getting mocked is because of all of these protest actions where the liberals show up and they're protesting. And then one of them, they'll need to move locations or they're going to change what they're doing. And one of them will stand up and start making announcements about what they're going to do. Nothing abnormal about that until they start saying things like, repeat after me. Now, Remember the last time someone said repeat after me? Obviously, sometimes it happens at church. Um, but for the main, most part, as an adult, you don't have people making you repeat your instructions back. Well, the last time we saw it happen was during the confirmation hearings for um, Justice Kavanaugh. And there were protesters in the Capitol building. There were protesters in the Senate offices, everything. Well, they would have the lead organizer have everyone else repeat after them. They'd say, um... We're going to go to the offices of this one and that one. We're going to go to the offices of this one or that one. We're going to sit there until we make them listen. We're going to sit there until we make them listen. Like drones, like automatons. So it's this awesome meme that's been created. And so first you have to understand, they use gamer terminology. So NPC is um, non-person. Okay, I, the... 
Okay, non-player character. Sorry, non-player character. So an NPC is a computer-generated non-player character in a video game. They're programmed to react in certain ways and say certain things because they're not human. So the image of NPCs is often rendered as it has like the computer face and then it's a generic person. You can't, it's ambiguous gender-wise and it has no hair. And this is what represents the non-player character in a video game. And the non-player character is meant to get you used to the video game, but it's never meant to be the highest level of play that you would engage in. So posters at 4chan and later Reddit underscore the underscore Donald began posting memes to mock the social justice warriors and leftists with, as NPCs with usually expressionless gray faces. They opened NPC accounts at Twitter mocking SJW speech, knowing Twitter would ban them. And Twitter did ban them under a new rule against dehumanizing people. So no one takes NPC accounts seriously. You'd have to be a redheaded knucklehead to believe that they're serious. But this all led to a New York Times story. The New York Times reported there is an NPC Wojak, a crudely drawn gray cartoon avatar with a pointy nose and a blank face. NPC Wojak is a variation of Wojak, an old cartoon, also known as Feels Guy, that has become a kind of collective mascot for the far-right commenters online. In recent weeks, users on 4chan and Reddit have made all kinds of memes featuring NPC Wojak. Far-right. Notice that. Do you, have you ever heard the media type say far left, though? Have you ever heard them say that? So if you watch the live stream, you can see the image there. I'll post the link. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting that they had that going on. And then lastly, people have been asking what is going on on the border? Like what is happening? First things, I don't think Donald Trump is going to give out a blow by blow explanation of what he's doing behind the scenes besides phone calls to try to put a stop to this migrant invasion. What I can tell you is that there are some things that he could do. Someone asked me what I would do. I'll tell you. I would seal the border for 90 days, stop all remittances from here to Mexico. I would stop the new trade deal from going through. I'd just put it on hold. I'd station 10,000 armed National Guardsmen on the southern border. And I would end, not suspend, I would end all USAID to the entire South American continent. That's what I would do. I'm not in charge. I don't hold a Yankee white security clearance, which is the highest that you can hold, means you're the, either the vice president or the president. And so... I don't get to make that decision, but that is what I would do. I would shut it down to the point where if they didn't stop the migrant horde, they would literally, their country would grind to a screeching halt. And we have the power to do that. Where one third of their GDP is remittances from our country. Come on now. We could do whatever we wanted. But what are they doing? The National Guard has about 2,100 troops working along the U.S.-Mexico border. On Monday, um, the president actually said the caravan was an assault on our country. And there are additional troops apparently in the works. We'll never know exactly how many are down there, but these are the guesstimates from information that's been provided to the news media. You've also now got estimates that 7,000 migrants have reached the southern Mexico area. Um, and there was an authorization back in April, if you remember, Defense Secretary Mattis had authorized as many as 4,000 troops could be sent to the border pending approval of participating state governors. DOD has not received a request from the White House for additional forces beyond those 4,000. Now, most of that 2,100 that are on the border right now are from Texas, California, New Mexico, and Arizona. A thousand of them, so roughly half, are from Texas. Um, 
And if you're wondering how many they're not armed and how many uh, how many National Guardsmen do we have across the country? Well, in in total, what I was able to find this morning when I was searching was about uh, over half a million in the National Guard and then another half a million in our army for the total of like 1.1 million standing army for the United States. Now, what I couldn't find was whether or not those figures also included Marines, Navy and Air Force, um, because those aren't considered soldiers, if you will. Um, when you say army, the literal definition of that would be our U.S. Army, which is completely separate from our U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy and U.S. Marine Corps. So I don't know what those totals are. And I actually saw a posting on there that said, well, you know, um, for national security, why would we ever have on the Internet the exact total of how many troops we have? But we have the second largest standing army in the entire world. And I was like, oh, second largest, really? But I believe the largest standing army is actually China. And they have a billion people, so how can we compete? Um, but the Pentagon has said they're looking at ways they can bolster barriers in their training territory, possibly by reinforcing existing barriers along more than 20 miles of military lands along the U.S.-Mexico border. And this is located at the Barry M. Goldwater Training Range in Arizona. Now, um, there are portions of border wall there. The president's already said that he would possibly even use um, you know, the military to build a border wall. I think those are all fantastic ideas. There's there's nothing like the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. When they build it, it gets built, it gets built right, and it's there until they decide it's no longer there. Um, they are they are the premier engineering organization in our country when it comes to anything that has to do with the government, certainly, but really private sector as well. They're they're amongst the best, and so I think if we needed a wall, they could do it. We need a wall, by the way. I do think we need one. <laughs> So, um, God bless you. I am saying good night to you from the heartland. Citizens, enjoy your evening. If you're leaving now, if you're staying with us, hang out. You got onenewsnow.com information coming at you right after this music. <laughs>